Good morning, Kent Cove. Well, as we have heard this morning, today is the third Sunday in Advent, and the theme for the day is joy. And so with that, hear this gospel reading from the Gospel of Luke chapter 3, beginning in verse 7. John said to the crowds coming out to be baptized by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Produce fruit in keeping with repentance, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham for our father, for I tell you that out of these stones God can raise up children for Abraham. The axe is already at the root of the trees, and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be, will be cut down and thrown into the fire. What should we do then? The crowd asked. John answered, anyone who has two shirts should share with the one who has none, and anyone who has food should do the same. Even tax collectors came to be baptized. Teacher, they asked, what should we do? Don't collect any more than you are required to, he told them. Then some soldiers asked him, and what should we do? He replied, don't extort money and don't accuse people falsely. Be content with your pay. The people were waiting expectantly and were all wondering in their hearts if John might possibly be the Messiah. John answered them all, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. Please join me in prayer. Bless us this day, O Lord, with vision. May this place be a sacred place a telling space where heaven and earth meet. Amen. Well, this morning, I want to talk to you a little bit about fire. I have some experience with fire. Uh, the picture that you see on your screen there is from 2017 in Sonoma County, something called the Tubbs Fire. That was the fire that swept into the city of Santa Rosa and destroyed over 3,000 homes. And it was the first time that we were evacuated for wildfire while we lived there. The second time came two years later in 2019 with the Kincaid fire. And the experience of being evacuated is interesting. So the first time, the night of this fire, which was in early October in 2017, uh, it was on a Sunday uh, night, Monday morning. We, um, it was a typical October day and evening in that it was very windy, as is very common down there at that time of year. And we commented, as Gretchen and I were going to bed, we commented on just how windy it was and that we'd never seen wind like that before went to bed like normal, and then our phone, uh, phone started ringing at about 2 o'clock in the morning. Now, uh, thankfully, because the, the early warning 
um, system did not work correctly in Sonoma County that, that time. Uh, we have a friend who's a police officer, and uh, they called us and said, uh, you guys need to get out. Uh, you're being evacuated. And we thought it was, we weren't sure what was going on, right? It's like you wake up and, what are you talking about, right? Now, when we left our little neighborhood, we pulled out, and I looked to the right, and, and very similar to that is what we saw. Uh, in 2017, the fires came within a mile of the home that we lived in, and in 2019, they came within a half a mile of the home that we lived in. And it's an eerie experience, right? And you're uh, warned, hopefully, and your immediate reaction is to just grab what you think is important. Now, one of the lessons we learned is what you think is important is not necessarily what is actually important, right? And so um, we loaded up the car with, uh, with uh, photo albums, and uh, our, but we left our, the first time, we left our essential documents behind, you know, birth certificates, that kind of stuff. <laughs> Didn't think of those. Um, but it's an interesting thing because when, the wild, when wildfire is coming, your immediate response is just to escape. It's just to get out, to go where it's safe, right? To get somewhere where it's safe. And, and maybe you have time to warn some neighbors or to get your family together and to get out. And the, the reason, what made me think of this is this text that we read this morning has this image of fire. So we come to this text, and John is preaching in the wilderness, and uh, the, the text tells us that great crowds were coming out to hear him preach. And John's way of preaching is interesting because he greets them this response with, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee the coming wrath? Now, the image here that we miss is that this is an image of fire. So the wrath that John would talking about would be in the desert when fire comes, all the animals, you know, they flee in front of it, right? So snakes leave their holes, animals scurry, and that's the image that John is bringing to mind. It's an interesting response because in our kind of world, this is not the way preachers generally react when they gather a crowd. John did not go to the same church growth seminars that I did, right? John did not take that, uh, you know, that course of years ago, how to win friends and influence people, right? John's gathering a crowd, and his response is, you brood of vipers. Then he goes on to say, produce fruit in keeping with repentance, you see, what John is concerned about is that people are responding to this, this message that he's preaching, and their immediate response is just to get safe. It's just to be saved. It's just to get out of the way of the coming wrath. What John is concerned with, though, is in verse 8, he says, produce fruit in keeping with repentance. John is concerned that true repentance, true repentance be experienced, not simply an escape of judgment, not just, the, an, not just simply an escape of wrath, but, 
but producing fruit that is in keeping with true repentance. This struck me as I think about like where we find ourselves in kind of the history of the church, right? Because oftentimes when we preach the gospel, we preach the gospel in such a way as that, um, you know, we want people to not go to hell when they die, which is great. But if that's the only thing we're after, I don't think John would be very impressed. John would say, well, where's the fruit of that repentance? In other words, what, how has that transformed you? Because ultimately what Jesus is after is not so much uh, necessarily just keeping us from going to hell one day. He's interested in transforming us into God's people, right? So it's a both and, but it's very much a concern that it's not just about escaping something, it's about actually being transformed into the image of God to become fully God's people. And so the question for us might be, as we seek to uh, be God's people in the world and as we seek to share the gospel, are we sharing the gospel in such a way that we're just uh, getting people to flee the wrath that is to come, in other words, hell, or are we calling people to bear fruit that is in keeping with repentance, in other words, to be transformed by that judgment? Now, the immediate response, apparently, of the crowd that John has gathered, he heads them off, it seems, at the pass. He goes on to say, and do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. In other words, we are the chosen people. We are already okay, right? Because of the covenant. John says, for I tell you, out of these stones, God can raise up children of Abraham. In other words, God can do what God will do. You don't get to rest on that alone. You have to recognize that God is coming. And it's easy for us, as we read a text like this, to think, to kind of make a straw man out of that argument, right? Well, we clearly don't do that. We're, we don't, you know, we believe that uh, we have to have, you know, decided to follow Jesus to, to be saved and all of that. We don't just, we're not relying on that promise. But I would argue that we do sometimes. I would argue that it kind of sneaks in on us a little bit. We do the same by relying on our church attendance, our giving, our not participating in this sin or that sin, our behavior, our… we have all kinds of different ways that we have constructed systems that show us or reassure ourselves how good we really are and that we're really okay. And what John wants us to see or hear is that there is judgment coming and that there is not anyone who is outside of that. He says, goes on in verse 9 to say, the axe is already at the root of the trees and every tree that does not produce good fruit will be cut down and thrown into the fire. Notice that he doesn't say that the axe is at the root of the tree and every tree that, that does... Um, you know, X, Y, or Z gets cut down. No, it's if you produce fruit, that is the measure of whether or not the tree ends up in the fire. 
But here's the thing about fruit. Again, we, um, for a couple of things about this verse that are interesting. The first is that there's a wordplay happening in the original language that we don't get in English. And that wordplay is, and I don't know how to pronounce the words uh, in Aramaic, but they would have been uh, rock, R-A-Q, and car, Q-A-R. And they're, they're similar words for flee, root, and cut down. So it's this play on words, but the the image is that the trees produce fruit. This is one that we, an image that we hear over and over in the Gospels, isn't it? And in Paul's letters. And the thing that I um, really have been sitting with the last several years as I think about that, and, and maybe it was my time, you know, learning about wine and, and grape growing and all of that, but you'll notice that, that this image, this idea of producing fruit, Trees and vines don't produce fruit through effort. They produce fruit because that is what they do. They produce fruit naturally. Now, there are ways that we can uh, tend the ground and the trees and the vines to make them produce more fruit, to make them more fruitful, to make everything better. But ultimately, you don't see an apple tree just really gutting it out to produce apples. It produces apples because it's an apple tree. You don't see a grapevine just, you know, really struggling to produce grapes. You know, they produce grapes because they're a grapevine. But the way we understand spirituality, so often we act like the fruit that we produce is through our own effort. And part of, I think, the image that John is getting here is that Um, The fruit is produced through repentance. It's produced through absolutely relying on the mercy of God. We're going to come back to that in a minute. And we see what happens next in the text. Verses 10 through 14, three different groups say, What then shall we do? Which is an excellent question. What then shall we do? And you'll notice that John does not give them a list of moral behaviors. He doesn't give them a list of sins to not participate in. He doesn't give them a list of do's and don'ts. Well, actually, he does give them a list of do's, but they're not exactly what we generally would think of, right? What does John say to them? Well, first to the crowd, which is just the general people, the good people that come out to hear him, um, just normal people. He says to them that they should give, if they have two coats, they should give one away. If they have extra food, they should feed people. All of these kinds of things. Now, part of the background there is these are good Jewish people. And they might say, well, you know, we have laws for that. We have, uh, we leave a certain amount of our crops. We leave a certain amount of this. We, you know, we do these things that the law provide to provide for the poor. So we're good. We've done our part. But John clearly is not interested in that because he says, well, if you have more than you need, if you have two coats, then give one away. If you have more food than you can eat, then give that away. Give that to people who need it. And I think sometimes we get lulled into that same way of operating, don't we? Especially in our culture of conspicuous consumption. Right? Where one of the things I've noticed, and this is true no matter where we've lived, it's, an, it's really an interesting phenomenon 
Like right now, if I drive down Kent Kingley Road from, our, from where we're living towards Covington, they're building this huge, uh, there's this huge building going up. And, and what is it? Storage units. Because we don't have enough room in our houses to keep our crap. Right? So we have to have a storage unit to put enough stuff in. Right? And so there's this idea that, well, we pay taxes, we give to the church, I, you know, do this, that, and the other thing. And I think John would say to us the same, if we ask, well, what should we then do, John? He would say, well, if you have extra, give it away. Give it to people who need it. Then I love what happens next is the text says, and I love the way the text says it because I think it's so, it reflects such a human uh, attitude, right? Even the tax collectors, the text says. Even tax collectors came. Now remember, tax collectors are the worst of the worst, right next to the soldiers. And the soldiers have an excuse because they're foreign. The tax collectors, they're us, right? So imagine this. If you're a good Jewish citizen of that time, you're living in this country, and one of your neighbors, you know, one of your synagogue friends becomes a tax collector. Well, they are now a colluder. They are now cooperating, and not only cooperating, but getting rich off of the oppression that Rome has brought to your people, right? So tax collectors are not popular folks. But John's preaching does something so that even tax collectors say, what then shall we do? And John says, don't collect more than you should. Well, here's the deal. Everybody collected more than, we should, than they should. We, if we go further in the Gospels, you hear the story of Zacchaeus. And when Jesus meets Zacchaeus, he says, if I have cheated anyone, I will give them back and plus, right? That, that's... Um, that's hyperbolic. Of course he's cheated people because he's a tax collector. The whole system is rigged. Then the soldiers, right? So these are the occupying force come. They've even come to hear this prophet speak and preach, and their response is repentance, and they ask, what then should we do? What do we do? And John says, well, don't extort from people. Be content with your pay. Again, the whole system was such that a soldier could do what they could force their, um, the people to do whatever they wanted. They could take whatever they wanted. There was no recourse. This was common practice, and it was how these groups made money. This is how they funded their life, right? So if you're a tax collector or a soldier, these are accepted practices, and John says, well, what you should do is to stop. Just stop. Stop it. Don't do that anymore. Now, one of the things that it would be easy to overlook, to overlook in this little story, the, the way John tells this, is this is not just personal, right? At this point, this is now becoming systemic. Do you see it? You see, these tax collectors and these soldiers, they're part of a system. They're part of a system, and the way that system works is as a tax collector, I make a bid to Rome to collect however much taxes Rome asks for, and whatever I can collect on top of that is mine to keep, right? 
I'm a soldier. I get paid a certain amount from the treasury, but whatever I can get through uh, oppression, through um, extortion, through, you know, whatever, that's, that's fair game, and that's just gravy on top of my pay. So what happens when you go out and you hear the prophet speak, and you say, well, what then should I do? And the prophet says, well, you shouldn't take more than you're supposed to, and you shouldn't extort, and you stop doing it. Well, all of a sudden, it makes it a little bit messy for that tax collector down at the next booth. It makes it a little harder for that soldier, who, right? So now, all of a sudden, you are actively disrupting a corrupt system. And all I'm going to say about that this morning is we have an awful lot of conversation in the church these days about how, well, we should just preach the gospel, and it's only about personal issues, but the gospel isn't only about personal issues. It's about justice. It's about God's kingdom coming to earth. And when that kingdom comes to earth and it intersects our personal lives, then our personal lives disrupt corrupt corrupt systems. And the gospel all of a sudden gets big, right? So John is clear with this, even though John, as we know, as this goes on, um, John is, is pronouncing the coming of the kingdom of God. And in just a few verses, you don't have to read very far in the gospel to see what happens as John gets crosswise of Herod's corrupt system. It costs him his head, right? When he starts naming things that make that system come down on him. Things like, oh, you know, Herod, um, you really shouldn't be married (laughs) to your brother's wife. You know, or you really shouldn't be colluding with the Romans, or you really, you know, so this becomes very real. Then uh, the, the text goes on to say in verses 15 to 17, and asking the question is whether or not John is the promised one, whether or not John is the Messiah. And he answers them, I baptize you with water, but one who is more powerful than I will come, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit, pneuma, and fire. He will baptize you with wind and fire. Now remember, we're reading the Gospel of Luke. What other book did Luke write? Acts. And what happens in Acts? Pentecost. Wind and fire. Right? So, John is saying that, that Jesus will come and baptize with, with wind and fire, with the Holy Spirit and fire. His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear his threshing floor and gather the wheat into his barn, but he will burn up the chaff with unquenchable fire. Wind and fire. So what's happening here? What's happening here is refinement. Right? As the harvest happens and they bring the wheat in and they use the winnowing fork to throw the wheat up in the air, the chaff blows away and is burned. And the wheat is kept, it's brought into the barns and stored. Right? Fire is an ancient symbol of judgment, refinement, and purification, one author wrote. We may conclude that John and his contemporaries were already acquainted with all of these nuances. The Holy Spirit was understood as being active in saving, purifying, and judging. 
So about this time, um, verse 18 comes along and it says, And with many other words, John exhorted the people and proclaimed the good news to them. And about right now on this third Sunday of Advent, we're all asking, where is the joy? This is pretty heavy, right? This is not a, this isn't, when I think of joy, I don't think of you brood of vipers who warned you to flee the coming wrath. That's just not where I go. But that's the gospel text for this Sunday. So where is the joy? Where is that good news that verse 18 says that John was announcing? Well, it takes a little work, but I think this is where it is. The first thing we need to recognize is we've already heard in a number of different ways throughout this service is that joy is not just a good feeling, right? Joy isn't just, I feel happy, right? No, joy is that deep-seated knowledge that all things shall be well, that one day God will put all things to right. That is where we get joy from. Joy is not just a feeling of happiness. Joy is that deep-seated knowledge that even in the midst of a fourth, fifth, five millionth wave of a global pandemic, we know that one day all things shall be made right. Joy is knowing that even in the midst of living in a time where even brothers and sisters in Christ can't seem to speak the same language, even about basic things, we know that one day all things will be made right in the coming Christ. It is only through judgment See, this is the thing, right? We don't like to talk about judgment in our culture for good reason because we're really good at it. We love to judge each other. But that's not the judgment we're talking about here. It is only through God's judgment in Christ that we get to experience joy. It is only through the judgment that we experience in the wind and fire of God's redemption that we get to joy. It is only when we have experienced judgment that we enter into the freedom and fruitful life that Jesus came to bring. We no longer have to hold on to our masks. I mean, you do have to wear your masks. That's not what I mean. Somebody pointed out that if I said that, it was going to be very confusing. But we don't, that, that, the masks of performance, the masks of if I live good enough, if I, if I'm, you know, if I behave the right way, if I intellectually assent to the right ideas, that then I'll be okay. No, none of us are okay. That is the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is that none of us are okay, but God loves us and sent his son for us. As we talked about last week, um, this idea that God's primary orientation towards us, towards you, towards me, is love. It's not anger. It's not wrath. It's not punishment. It's not punitive. It's love. 
And so when God's judgment comes, it comes to make us whole. So instead of clinging to our own performance or thinking that if we just, if we just grit our teeth hard enough or, or push just a little bit more that we'll produce fruit that's worthy of repentance, right? No, that comes because we recognize that we can't do it. None of us can do it. But in, so instead of clinging to those, uh, the masks of perfection and performance, we cling to the mercy of God in Christ. That, friends, brings joy. So last week we talked about how God's, uh, how God's love, God's disposition towards us is love. And I mentioned uh, one of our kind of founding fathers in the covenant, a guy named Waldenstrom. He was a, a pastor in Sweden who got into a lot of trouble because he, he um, suggested that God's disposition towards us was not wrath but love, that, we were not, that God did not come because he was angry with us. He came because he loves us. In that paper that he wrote about that, he writes this, whoever you may be, in the eyes of God, you are too precious to die and perish. Therefore, turn and be reconciled to God, and you will be saved. Thus, God entreats and implores, and He wants an answer. An answer today, an answer from you. Oh, say, what answer will you give Him? Have you the heart to answer no? Friends, God has come. God is coming. And the only way for us to experience joy is to allow that coming to bring us to repentance so that we might turn to God and say, I have nothing to offer. What then shall I do? And recognize that God then turns to us and says, you are accepted in my Son. Now go and be like Him. Not out of your own effort, but through the wind of the Spirit and the transforming fire of my love. Amen.